So this evening I'd like to give a, a review, a short review of the Brahma Viharas. We mainly practice metta or loving kindness here in this retreat, but there were the other, uh, there are the other three Brahma Viharas that we've attempted to cover. In addition to metta, there's been compassion or karuna. And then last night, Mark spoke about sympathetic joy, or mudita. And tonight, I'd like to uh, go over them just briefly, just by stating them, and introduce the understanding of equanimity. So just to repeat about Brahma-viharas, Brahma, Brahma means high or divine, and vihara means abiding place. So these four Brahma-viharas are really the abiding places in our hearts for their, um, their cultivation and their use in our lives. So it's said that all these four uh, beautiful qualities are known as boundless states because in the fullness of their true nature, they're not limited. That uh, Sometimes I would hear the word illimitable, and um, we don't use that word very much uh, in the West, but that means there's no limit to the range of beings that they can um, be connected with, that we can offer to, who can receive them. So they're not bound by exclusivity, by partiality, by preference, or by prejudice. These are... um, boundless states that we can offer to all beings and we can also feel fulfilled by their offering, our offering to them. So the aim of these practices that uh, we've been practicing in metta in particular is to make these qualities sink deep into our hearts so that they become natural for us, spontaneous for us, And they're so deep that when uh, conditions come together where um, a response is needed, they're easily accessible. I think um, for many of us who have practiced metta for a long time or uh, the other practices, mostly metta I've practiced, I can recognize sometimes where it might go in another direction but it more easily will go to metta. Or even if it does go into another direction, which it can, you know, the opposite direction of metta, it would come back to metta. It would know that place and rest there. Also, as uh, we have been pointing out, uh, the practice of these qualities achieves stronger states of mental concentration which are really uh, needed for our own tranquility, for our own kind of even momentary peace of mind. Also, these strong states of concentration really help us on the path of liberation. They're greatly, greatly um, empower the, uh, the practices that we do, for example, in Vipassana, where we are Uh, practicing being with whatever arises moment to moment. When concentration is strong, that concentration can be on all the changing objects that arise in the various four foundations of mindfulness. And the mind is able to see deeply into them, their universal characteristics. So this is why concentration is really important and a firm basis for our Vipassana practice and for insight to arise. Mostly we recognize their value on a personal, everyday level because uh, it gives us a choice, you know, when they're practiced in our hearts and we know the pathway there more and more, we have a choice to choose them when perhaps something else is coming up and we realize, oh, there's, there's another possibility here. Or perhaps when we practice them enough, that possibility becomes, it comes into the foreground of our attention. 
And we don't have to work too hard to make that choice. The choice can be uh, somewhat obvious to us. I've noticed in my own life and with um, my colleagues and uh, some of you that I know, that when that um, possibility is there and it arises more and more often, I notice a repattering of my mind. That uh, the places where it used to go, where there was much more unwholesome qualities of the mind that could arise, they're not as prevalent. They still are, of course, in my life. But when I compare to how it was like 30 years ago, or 40 years ago, there's much less um, compared to then. But as I say, uh, still working on it. I notice their weakness, though, or if they're if they're strong, you know, they're kind of strong times when a lightning bolt of anger would occur, or a lightning bolt of resentment might occur, and and then it's gone. You know, I might say a few cuss words, and <laughs> that I'm done with it. <laughs> Uh, you'd be surprised. <laughs> um, so I just want to read something. When I first started studying the Brahma Viharas, I picked up a little booklet called The Vision of Dhamma by Nyaponika Thera, who's a German monk who translated many of the major teachings of the Buddha from Pali into English. And this was... Um, this vision of the Dhamma was about the Brahma Viharas. It's one of those um, yellow little books that you get from Sri Lanka. Um, I think they're all still available online. Anyway, this is a um, quotation from Neoponika Tara about Brahma Viharas. They provide, in fact, the answer to all situations arising from social contact. They are the great removers of tension, the great peacemakers in social conflict, and the great healers of wounds suffered in the struggle of existence. They level social barriers, build harmonious communities, awaken slumbering magnanimity long forgotten, revive joy and hope long abandoned, and promote human good against the forces of egotism. And one of my teachers, Ayakema, uh, this was 30 years ago or so, when I was practicing these four emotions, what she called um, the four divine emotions, said if these were the only emotions we had, plus mindfulness, it would, all, it would be all that we would need to live in this world, you know, successfully. So they're not things that kind of make us weak, they're things that make us really strong. So equanimity is a very strong emotion in itself. It's not like an emptiness of feeling. Equanimity is a balance. It implies balance, but it's much more than that. It gives us a balance uh, to see things in a way where we're level-headed or we're level-minded and hearted about things. It's said that equanimity uh, is the basis, uh, equanimity has as its basis metta, as well as all the other Brahma-viharas have the basis of metta. Because metta or goodwill has to be the basis of all these Brahma Viharas, this kind of understanding of um, one's own goodness, one's own integrity. And from that integrity, a lot of these qualities can be much more empowered, actually. Um, because metta has, you know, its opposites, which are greed and hatred. When equanimity is there, that greed and hatred cannot have its cannot be um, activated, because equanimity is very very strong, and the characteristic of equanimity is non-reactivity. So when equanimity is there, these non-reactive tendencies, the opposites of metta, 
which are greed and hatred, they can't be activated because equanimity takes over. And it doesn't allow that, that uh, reactivity to take place. That's why it makes metta powerful. Along with all the other um, qualities, the sympathetic joy and compassion, when equanimity is uh, supporting them, then the, the opposites of those qualities cannot arise. So that's why mudita can be very powerful without that demeaning. And um, what was the other quality, the near enemy of? Anyway, you can't, you can't feel those opposites when uh, equanimity is there. So the chief characteristic of equanimity is even-mindedness, so that we feel that there. You know, we, we feel that it's not going towards one area or another that's not beneficial for the situation. It really stays with that even-mindedness and sees all things. Um, it, it's able, so it's able to weigh everything. One of the descriptions of equanimity is um, standing in the middle of things. So it's neither taking one side or another. And when it's standing in the middle, it can see both sides. And it can take both sides into consideration. And it's said that equanimity brings more wisdom to the mind. So it's, it's closer to the wisdom factor. So it brings that wisdom in that helps a mind and heart to realize this will lead to suffering, don't go there. This will lead to benefit, go in that direction. So that's kind of the, the basic um, quality of, of wisdom that understands what leads to suffering and to abandon or avoid that what leads to benefit and to cultivate that or go towards that. So there's balance, there's even-mindedness, there's standing in the middle of everything so we can see all sides. And it's said that equanimity gives love that even uh, unwavering loyalty to the ups and downs of life. So that when things happen in our relationships, with our children, with our loved ones, with our parents, with all beings. We might feel the bumpiness of that, of course. We might get rattled with all of it. We might have some reactivity to it, but there's a possibility for the mind to come back to some evenness, to some balance, to be able to see things as they are and refrain from reacting if we started to react already. So it can recognize the wrong or unwholesome activity, uh, but it also doesn't wipe out seeing one's goodness. It can recognize the wrongness of what's happening, but it still can recognize one's goodness and one's potential for goodness. So this um, equanimity is not an emotional emptiness. It has a lot of qualities going for it. Um, and it's all the Brahma-viharas, uh, all the other three Brahma-viharas are made more powerful by this quality. Just in terms of the metta practice, sometimes I use an equanimity phrase in addition to the metta phrase because um, it makes it uh, more powerful in terms of my understanding. For example, in offering a metta to my children or loved ones in my family, when there has been difficulty between us, uh, it may be difficult for me to offer my love, offer my goodwill, but somehow there's a part of my heart that can still do it, that can say, I offer you my goodwill, even though I see this part of our relationship isn't working, I still can offer my goodwill. And the way I say it in, with an equanimity phrase is, I offer you my goodwill, understanding this is the way things are right now. So an equanimity phrase can always accompany our meta phrase to allow us to kind of have a bigger heart, a bigger view of the situation. 
that this is how it is right now, but it's not how it is forever, or and there is a potential for other things to happen here. So I can offer my goodwill, and this is how it is right now. It's not so good. And so it recognizes all of that at the same time as being able to offer it. The, the actual equanimity phrase that was offered um, in the Dharma is, um, has to do with karma. So it's, it's pretty deep and sometimes it's hard to understand. But here's a phrase. All beings are owners of their actions or their karma. Their happiness or unhappiness depends upon their actions or intentions and not my wishes. So sometimes when I've had, and I, I have had, you know, a lot of challenges with raising children, I know that, um, you know, I could tell them, give them advice or even sometimes strongly say, don't go down that river. It's got an unseen waterfall and you're going to fall over that. I'm speaking metaphorically. And you're going to just fall over that and get hurt or, you know, worse than that. And still, you know, they would do it. <laughs> and so my, my understanding of that, all beings are owners of their karma, inside me would be a little bit of a dharma talk, would be something like, I do understand that they have their own strong ways of being, and they have their karma, which are many unknown, unfathomable conditions that are arising in their heart and mind stream that I cannot control. And still, I can offer metta. And so, I shorten that whole thing to say, um, I offer you my goodwill, my love, and all beings have their own journey. Or, and you have your own journey. I can't control that journey. So it, it just really helps me in the face of things sometimes when they've taken a turn to some place where I can see, ooh, this is really trouble. And just shortly, in short, I just say, okay, you have your own journey. And, um, you know, thankfully things turned out all right in the long run, though there are still ups and downs. Um, you know, we're all dealing with it the best we can. So, I wanted to say something in particular about metta and what we've been practicing. And now I want to go into the, the equanimity talk I've um, given a few times already. Maybe some of you have heard already. And uh, this is a, in regard to life in general. Um, I wanted to um, kind of make equanimity, like uh, give you details that were more about life in general and not just in particular to the Brahmaviharas and to Metta. So um, this talk has to do with um, seeing the world with quiet eyes, seeing the world with quiet eyes. And I was inspired by the Reverend Dr. Howard Thurman uh, when I heard and read one of his meditations called Deep is the Hunger. Dr. Thurman was an African-American minister of that church in San Francisco that still exists, the Fellowship of All Peoples, and he founded that in 1944. So this is a quote by him from a book that I read about him. How may we work in the world courageously and intelligently on behalf of a decent world without despair and complete fatigue? What are the resources for personal rehabilitation and renewal that we may be able to look out on life with its vicissitudes of cruelty and joys, with quiet eyes and a tranquil spirit? Seeing the world with quiet eyes is one of the subjective experiences of equanimity. And so, meaning to say that there's, 
there's a lessened degree or maybe an absence even of reactivity to the world with whatever is happening, that we can see it with quiet eyes. And that doesn't mean we're not going to respond. It just means that we can take it in, we can see clearly, we can access places in our hearts and minds and wisdom from other people too, to know how to respond and when is the right time and many other conditions that make um, for benefit in the world. So this subjective experience of inner calm and quiet, which is the feeling we get when there's equanimity, it makes us feel very balanced, which is when we read that word or see that word, that's the first thing that comes to us, balance. But sometimes we forget that it can also mean spaciousness because equanimity is big. Like with equanimity, a person, you might recognize a person and say, that person has a big heart. Meaning to say that that person can open to a lot in life and not get bogged down by it or not get uh, wiped out by it. But when you can open to so much in life, you have a wide view uh, of experience that so, so much can happen. You can see the person maybe um, doing wrong, but you can also see the goodness of that person somehow or their potential for it. It allows experiences to be known in an unbiased way so that we're not just kind of leaning on our family of origin stuff, you know, that um, kind of gives us a limited view. Or no, nor are we going on, you know, any kind of limited view. Uh, we're able to touch into our intuition. We're able to touch into something deeper than, um, you know, concepts of the world, but know what's good and know what action to take in the moment. So uh, unbiased means that there's an absence of aversion or attachment to the inner experience or to the outer experience. These two, attachment and aversion, are the direct opposites of equanimity. So they are called the far enemies of equanimity. And um, together they're called reactivity. So really the one word far enemy of equanimity is reactivity in these two ways. But when they're not present, there's a clarity and there's a calm and there's an ability to have a wise view of the situation so that we can speak we can act, or maybe we can take the path of which we often don't realize we have the opportunity to use, we can take the path of waiting, of not speaking now, of waiting till we gather more information or gather more calm in our minds and hearts, gather more wisdom. So we have the opportunity to know when to respond. So this is uh, important to reflect on in these times because of the times we live in. There is a proliferation of so many views and opinions and where are we to turn? And we end up, you know, just repeating the views and opinions and um, not really touching into our own hearts and minds. You know, just saying this person says that, another person says another thing, and we're just all lost in somebody else's views and opinions. Equanimity gives us an opportunity to see what's going on in our own hearts in relationship to what's happening in the world. And maybe if we see that there's a lot of reactivity there, that we give ourselves a time to calm down first. We get so busy doing that we forget about the beingness, life of life thing. So that opposite of equanimity is reactivity. And the reactivity that happens through um, greed or hatred uh, are usually the patterns, the deep patterns that we have, that we just let, let them just 
get unleashed in our life and go and not really take time to say, is this going to be beneficial or is this going to be harmful? So with equanimity, we have that chance to do it. So in these conditions that we have here, these very rare and precious conditions, we're able to um, really see what's going on in the mind and heart. I mean, one of the beauties of doing metta practice is that there's mindfulness there too. And we're able to see more clearly what's coming up in the heart and mind in relationship to a certain individual or maybe a certain phrase that we use. We're able to uh, recognize maybe places that we're not so used to seeing. As I said earlier um, in the week, I, I notice in my own practice with metta that really difficult experiences would come up from long ago, remembrances of things from long ago, and I was able to see them better or kind of hold them more gently because of metta. When sometimes when I would do that with a pure kind of insight or vipassana practice, it would just be too stark. But with the metta, I was just able to let it come up. This was very helpful in my practice so that I could learn to kind of allow them to be known, allow those deep recesses of the mind to be known. So there's enough safety there, um, and that's why it feels safe to be around it. But also there's a certain amount of equanimity that's been developed along the years of life and um, having to live through the various ups and downs like all of us have. So, um, this is from Thomas Merton, an American Trappist monk in the Catholic tradition, lived at the Abbey of Gethsemane in, in Kentucky. He was a social activist and a, actually a student of, the dar- of um, comparative religions, and he was very interested in the Dharma. So this writing verifies a lot of what we have learned to be true uh, by being here and taking some space from our busy lives. Mark talked about uh, uh, rushing, and um, Thomas Merton is talking about here uh, courageous rest, which is what we're doing here, you know, having this courageous rest so that we stop all the rushing around in our minds and in our walking and in our hearts So here is what um, Thomas Martin said. Some of us need to discover that we will not begin to live um, fully until we have the courage to do and see and taste and experience less than usual. There are times when in order to keep ourselves in existence at all, we simply have to sit back for a while and do nothing. And for a person who has let themselves be drawn completely out of themselves by their activity, nothing is more difficult than to sit and rest doing nothing at all. The very act of resting is the hardest and most courageous act a person can perform. So he wrote this in the 50s or the 60s, but it's still so true today, and even more so even, uh, I think, with them. all that we have to deal with in the world right now and the speed of uh, communication and the, um, so much of it, so much communication. So we can feel this rush and the pressure of life and it's understandable that, um, you know, we feel the anxiety and depression that comes up. The Buddha often talked about the eight worldly conditions in relationship to equanimity. And so here are these eight worldly conditions. Sometimes um, we hear it as the four pairs of vicissitudes that we're constantly feeling this flux of in our lives, which is why we have a lot of reactivity and there's, it's hard to be equanimous. There's praise and blame, gain and loss, 
fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain. So all you have to do is read the news and, and one of those is going to pertain to many items in the news. So this is a major reason that we feel this vulnerability, this depression, this anxiety in our lives. And uh, equanimity is a huge support for that, to bring a level of like, uh, like I said, I, I use in the equanimity phrase, just to be, if we can be relaxed and as open as we feel safe to be and spacious enough, we can say, this is the way it is right now. Even for a moment, we can perhaps open to how it is, take it in, and still allow our minds and hearts to rest. So sometimes equanimity is called resting the mind before it falls into extremes. So before it goes to hatred, before it goes to attachment to how we think it should be, we can rest the mind somewhere in the middle, maybe where we feel some balance. So I'd like to um, talk about how there can be this resting in regards to the external level of um, experience that we have and to the internal also, because we can react to what's happening externally, of course, and we can also react to what's happening internally. Just actually, when we have a reactivity to the external, we can also add another layer of that to reacting to ourselves, like, I'm a bad person, or I can't do it, or I'm not worthy of this practice, or whatever. So, just like to suggest that here, there, there can be three arrows, you know, those of you who know about the two arrows, you know, the, the first arrow that hits us is painful, and then another arrow that we give ourselves, which is, you know, some kind of judgment, and then another arrow can be when we react to ourselves, to our own judgment, to our own feeling of inadequacy, for example. When we can see that and we know that, you know, it's one of the one of the Brahmaviharas can come up and arrest that moment or give that moment a rest by offering metta, by offering compassion, by maybe going straight to equanimity uh, in a Brahmavihara sense, or sometimes just on a wisdom sense of uh, equanimity. Equanimity is also one of the beautiful qualities of mind, one of the paramis. So. As a parami, just um, and, and not using it as a Brahma Vihara, one can know equanimity by just offering a kind of um, a advice to ourselves that's simple, like, "Can I open to this just as it is, to this moment just as it is?" Just kind of allowing ourselves to take in the situation of what's going on, for example, in the news or in the world or just how people's um, opinions are and uh, you know we're just so tired of hearing our own opinion even that just receiving somebody else's can be an overwhelm and just being able to say okay this is the way it is right now sometimes I have to say I don't want to talk about uh, the vaccine or the masks anymore <laughs> uh, let's take a rest and just take a walk so sometimes you just have to draw a line, too. It's not just saying, this is the way it is right now. It is just drawing a line, making a boundary. A friend told me that she was actually, uh, she, she was complaining a lot by, about what was going on in the world, but when she really took a look at what was going on, she said she felt more assaulted by her own thinking, by her own reactivity to what was going on in the world. It wasn't so much that, but it was how she was reacting. And when she could handle that part, that made it a lot easier. Because can't control that, but we have some agency to uh, respond to ourselves in ways that can be helpful. 
So there's this, um, all the outer conditions are so unpredictable and the inner conditions are deeply set patterns, habit patterns of mind, default settings, constantly bombarding us. I find that it's important to use equanimity in relationship to the outer world and to our inner experience because then we're covering as many bases as we can. So this is the way it is here, this is in this world, and this is the way it is in my heart too. Manindra used to use um, this languaging, my first teacher. He would say, surrender to the law. The law of how it is. Like, like right now, what's happening, this is how it is. And he would say, surrender to the law. And old story, but it, it has a lot of replay, <laughs> I think, um, value. The first time I learned that was when um, I knew that surrender to the law meant just surrender to how it is right now. This is a law of conditions unfolding. Many conditions come together, and what happens is they unfold just like this. So um, he was in my house during the time of that, the time when he was um, uh, healing from a surgery, and um, I had um, some children, and one one of them was about thirteen. And she was arguing with her father in a high voice. And Manindra and I were sitting at the table. He was sitting at the kitty that corner, and I was sitting here. And um, that daughter and her father were in the um, in the television room, and they were having a big argument, really shouting to one another. And I had asked the children, please, when Manindraji is here, can we make it healing for him? Can you please be as quiet as you can? Please, no arguments now, all right, during this time. <laughs> and so when this happened, it was like, oh, you know, I, I didn't know what to do. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I was angry. I was feeling like to get up and, you know, and say, stop, <laughs> with all my might. And I just, I think I was just frozen. And Manindra was just listening and watching and hearing and I saw his eyes darting around like, what's going on? And so, uh, <clears throat> all of a sudden my daughter ran around me this way and then down the hall. And she went to her room and slammed the door with all her might. And so her father came around after her. Open the door, open the door. No, all her might. Open the door. No. Open the door, else I'll kick the door down. Go ahead. Boom, it got kicked down. <laughs> so, um, at the time, Manindra just looked at me and he put his right hand on my forearm and he said, surrender to the law. Like, this is how it is. You know, what are you gonna do about this now? <laughs> you, just, you just have to kind of, this is how it is. They weren't killing each other, so, you know, and the door was pretty thin, so, okay. <laughs> this, this is what happens, you know, in families sometimes. All along I was thinking, this never happens in India. You know, <laughs> children are very obedient, not mine. So embarrassed. But um, so whenever I get this feeling that it's just, I feel like I don't know what to do. And actually, I did get up and say, that's enough now, you know, but it was already calmed down. But every time I feel that, I, I can hear him surrender to the law. And actually, I still feel that, you know, his sweet um, touch of my arm. So this is, this is important, this surrender to the law. It means that equanimity that we can just stay, okay, let's surrender to how it is, and then we can know what to do about it.
So the Buddha in the Majjhima Nikaya said, develop a mind that is vast like space where experiences both pleasant and unpleasant can appear and disappear without conflict, struggle, or harm. Rest in a mind that is vast like the sky. So it is like that with equanimity. It, it feels like you just give more room to be human and for things to be as they are instead of, you know, we fight against it or speaking for myself, like why can't it be like it was before or um, like it could be, but it isn't. And so this is resting the mind before it falls to the extreme so that we can know what to do about the situation and sometimes it just means hanging back a little bit instead of leaning into it as Mark was saying earlier. So to really survive and thrive as a human being we have to have a big enough space in our heart and mind to make room for reality because this is a reality since time immemorial it has always been the reality if you would read some of the stories about the Buddhist time, it was treacherous during that time, during the time of the Buddha. People were trying to kill him, his own relatives, you know. People were, kings and queens were, uh, you know, being uh, attacked and um, just reading something about Metta the other day that I thought to read to you, but it was actually too violent <laughs> about a queen's... Uh, handmaidens who were jealous of her and were, were burning her up, you know, but um, because of metta, they didn't feel the fire. <laughs> it's one of the things, if, if um, you have metta, then uh, you will be protected from fire. You might get burned up, but you won't feel it. <laughs> but it was still pretty treacherous, so I said, no, I'm not going to read this one. <laughs> There was, it was treacherous during that time, so things are still going on like that. So when are we ever going to come to the reality of this is the way it is right now? And let's, let's do what we can, everything we can, and, um, and go on, you know, and, and continue to give our goodwill and love, see what we can do in our little communities, and give our, our goodwill and our good energy and everything we can to help out. So I like that metaphor of the sky because it gives a description of the spaciousness of equanimity. And we can feel that inside, that spacious quality. Again, from about the spacious quality from Achan Sumedho, um, beautiful uh, monk in the Thai tradition, Elder now. The mind is like space. There is room in it for everything or nothing. Armies can come into the mind and leave. Butterflies, rain clouds, or nothing. All things can come and go through us without being caught in reaction or resistance. Well, sometimes that's true, you know, and more times than not if we can practice equanimity. So, <clears throat> I've noticed how equanimity is helpful to the outer conditions, and in recent years been more practicing equanimity towards the inner conditions. Like when I have reacted to something already, we're so pulled into the outer conditions that it's hard to notice the inner conditions. So we might notice our reactivity, but do we take another step and, and maybe bring some words to it or some guidance to ourselves that help us incline more towards equanimity, towards spaciousness, towards balance, towards non-reactivity? So His Holiness the Dalai Lama called this an inner disarmament when we can do that for ourselves. You know, when we see that, for example, we're just um, maybe ready to, something has gone on between ourselves and another member of the family, and we can see right away that 
something's coming up, I'm going to say something, you know, a little smart ass. <laughs> and uh, it's just like, I could see that, I could see that coming, just wait, just give it more space, okay, don't do this. And then, you know, it's just that equanimity of knowing that this isn't going to help anything. So, um, we, we lean back a little more, we don't go forth with those kinds of things, we just give it a little more space, which might mean giving time for it. Or sometimes saying, I can't say anything right now because, you know, I'm not thinking clearly. I notice I, I said that one time in an argument with a neighbor, and she said, you're right, you're not thinking clearly. Oh, <laughs> I, like, I had, you know, that was like uh, arrow number six or something. <laughs> so we can stop those arrows. <laughs> you can find ways. So the resting the mind before it falls into the extremes of attachment or aversion. Attachment is another thing. It's like, you know, we're going to stand on our argument. We are really attached to our view. And um, it, it's good to say once in a while, oh, maybe you're right, you know. So I, I, we had a cook one time um, when um, we, we used to have these long retreats in, on Maui. Candle was there being the manager of that a long time ago. And we had this cook that was getting into an argument with another cook uh, that was there. And um, uh, he was always, the other cook was always more forceful and um, just, you know, wanted his way. And this other cook just always like felt so um, resigned to it and kind of weak and um, not having any um, wherewithal to say anything. And so I asked him one time, what, what helps you, you know, when, when you're in this situation? with this cook, what, what helps you to face this? And so he says, you know, sometimes I say to myself, maybe he's right. <laughs> and then he says, I just calm down because I'm not standing so firmly on my attachment to how I think it should be. And um, then he says, uh, he said, I, then I don't suffer as much. But, you know, he could watch that other person suffering, you know, standing on his need to be right. So that's the reactivity of um, the opposite of equanimity. Hatred, attachment, and the near enemy, and that's a far enemy of reactivity, and the near enemy is what they call the near enemy because it seems like equanimity. And that can be an indifference. You know, when you're just like, I don't care that kind of thing, just indifferent. Apathy, passivity, complacency, these are all near enemies or um, the, uh, see what, I called it something different before. Well, the near enemy of reactivity. When you, um, you, you feel like you don't have any connection to what's going on. It's really a mind and heart that's disconnected from what's actually happening. I must admit that sometimes we have to do that on purpose, you know, with all, all the news that we, the news feeds that we get, and you have to disconnect in order to save yourself from, you know, even going into the near or far enemy. So sometimes people say, well, sometimes I just, I feel like I just don't care or I just want to avoid it and be in denial of what's going on. Sometimes people say, it feels like an emotional emptiness. And that's when we're not really connected with uh, what's happening. Equanimity is when we actually feel totally connected and we feel a, a sense of, um, some sense of agency and we know when to act that out. So some things with regard to 
equanimity is that we're, we can see clearly, we can care deeply about it, and we have the possibility to act wisely at the right time. So it does not leave out action. Some people think about equanimity in a wrong way, an incorrect way, and think that, oh, that's just, you know, being a, a, a doormat. But it isn't really. It's really being clear and being able to act when it's necessary and actually to act in a way that's powerful. So sometimes how we live in our lives and respond to things that happen around us, um, if we understand that it creates our future, reactivity is a real important uh, you know, unwholesome quality to watch out for because every time we react in ways that are unwholesome, those seeds are planted in our karmic stream and they'll come up again. You know, but if we can refrain from reacting in those ways, they weaken those seeds. We can't control the events around us because they've already happened, but we can be responsible or response, able to respond, uh, which has a positive effect, effect on us and on future events. So equanimity gives us the means to do that. It rests the mind before it falls into extremes. It's able to find the balance, connect with what wisdom is necessary, and act in the right time, at the right the right place at the right time with the right motivation when that person is ready when you're ready you know with loving kindness so it has many strengths and benefits it allows for a deeper rest it allows for clarity in the mind and heart it supports metta it supports awareness um, we can be unbiased, but we can be very clear. So we don't have to have the veils of greed and aversion to misconstrue, to misconceive, uh, to misspeak, and to act in ways that cause more harm. So this is not a resignation, this equanimity. It's a clear recognition of what's happening with a big, big heart spacious mind. So as a holiness, His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, in that state of mind, you can deal with the situation with calmness and reason while keeping your own inner happiness. So I'd like to um, tell you a story of uh, one of the last times I was with Manindraji. <clears throat> it didn't turn out to be the last time, but I thought it might be, because he was getting older, and I went to visit him in India. And um, so he was in the south of India where I went to pick him up, and then we traveled to um, different holy places. And uh, one of the places he always wanted to um, have me see is... Um, um, to go down the banks of the Ganges River and to see the the uh, burning ghats where you know the bodies are burned when people are are being cremated out in the open and so um, it would it would take your dharma teacher you know to want you to see burning bodies <laughs> as as part of the training so um, I have a strong memory of this. It was our last day in India, and we were in Varanasi, and which is one of the oldest cities, if not the oldest one in the world. So before dawn, um, and just before the sun was rising, we went out to get a boat to go down the Ganges River. And I was with Manindraji and two other friends, two other Dharma friends. And we went along the banks of the river. 
And so as we're going down on the banks, on the left side of the river and the far horizon was the sun shining. It was coming up over the horizon. And on the right side was the burning gas already. You know, they're starting to burn. Sometimes you would see people around already and bodies, um, but I wasn't that close to see them actually on the wood piles. And uh, so I just really realized, you know, as I was going down and and then in retrospect, remembering the time, that here was the beginning, you know, of a day, and here was the ending of life. And just the juxtaposition of that just really hit me, you know, just like, wow, the opposites of life here, just right in my midst. And of course, I was just always surrounded by the Dharma during that time, so it was very, very hitting me very clearly. And then um, there was joy, you know, joy in my heart because I could get to see Manindraji and I wanted to see him before he died. And uh, he wasn't dying then, but he was elderly. And so it was great joy for me, you know, to be able to be beside him. And um, also, if I looked to my right, there was sorrow. So, you know, just trying to hold these two almost at the same time in my heart, you know, just, it takes some spaciousness to be able to do that. Wasn't sure I could, but, um, you know, just back and forth to see the crying, the people in sorrow, and to feel my own joy at the time. And then um, some despair, you know, for the people there that I saw, despair in my heart, but also, uh, happiness, Mudita, for myself and for my friends, my two friends, that I was able to, they had heard so many stories of Manindra, so um, I asked them to come with me, and so they met me in India, and from, from different continents they were from, so we all met in India. So feeling great joy and great good fortune for them to have um, this teacher with them, and uh, to consider him, their teacher, and then despair for the people that were the relatives. And India, you know, the beauty of it is is so great, but the rawness of it is really raw. It's really hard on your heart to see the many things you could see. Um, I won't even go there. Uh, just the the heritage of the Buddhist teachings, you know, that came from India, and um, the places that we went to, where the Buddha gave his first sermon, um, and where he sat under the Bodhi tree, you know, just understanding the great realization of that, but also seeing the suffering of people in, in, in this place of India, very harsh, very harsh. So just being able to hold so much, it, it, it felt like there was that spaciousness, in retrospect, it felt like there was that spaciousness of equanimity that's, that could be developed. It takes situations like this that open our hearts, you know, and and allow us to stretch where we feel we can't stretch sometimes, or go into places we feel so hard to go to, like places in our own hearts. But unless we do that, we, we won't find any growth. So this is, um, this is why we do the practice this that we do. It's wisdom. You know, to know that we need to suffer sometimes to grow. We need to allow our children to suffer sometimes in order to grow. And, of course, know how to navigate it all so it comes out all right. I just want to end with this poem um, by William Stafford. And it's from the book The Way It Is, a beautiful book about, you know, karma the way it is. 
not just about karma, but many things. So the name of this um, uh, poem is The Little Ways That Encourage Good Fortune. Wisdom is having things right in your life and knowing why. If you do not have things right in your life, you will be overwhelmed. You may be heroic, but you will not be wise. If you do have things right in your life, but do not know why, you are just lucky. And you will not move in the little ways that encourage good fortune. Just to end with a, a comment on that, that I think we all are moving in great ways to encourage good fortune for ourselves and others. So may that be so. So let's sit for a moment, let the words dissolve. Thank you for listening to the Dharma.